So if you're old enough to remember the 1967 film The Graduate, or you're just a movie buff, you'll no doubt remember the classic line from that movie. So Dustin Hoffman is at a party after graduating, and he's pulled aside by an older gentleman who says to him, I just want to say one word to you, just one word. Are you listening? Plastics. At the time, it was clear that plastics were the future, and no doubt plastic. Plastics have become an essential part of everyday life. Not a day goes by that we don't encounter plastics in our daily lives, and their cheap and durable nature has allowed them to become the go-to material for many of our daily household products. I spent one day trying to note all the different objects that I came into contact with that were made out of plastic, and I eventually just gave up because I lost count. It was too many. And yet, most of us have concerns about the role that plastics play in our health. So we've all seen moves to get rid of plastic straws and reduce the disposable plastic grocery bags at the grocery store and to move more and more plastics out of our lives as they continue to fill up landfills. But leaving aside the impacts that plastics are having on the environment, there are also concerns about the effects that plastics have directly on our health. So I Googled plastics and health and the first hit that came up was a post on the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health website, which said they hold your water, line your canned goods and even help sick babies. But are the potential health risks of certain plastics so great, they outweigh the benefits. But then the next hits after that were from sites that had less than reputable names, which suggested that plastics cause nearly every disease under the sun. And since plastics are everywhere in our modern society, how can we even try to learn what the effects of plastics are? So that's the topic we're going to take on today. I'm your host, Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health. And this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, we are delighted to be back for our second episode, and we are going to be talking about the impact of plastics on health. And to do so, I am joined by epidemiologist and assistant professor Anna Pollack from George Mason University to lead us in a conversation on this topic. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. Um, and today, um, we are very pleased to be joined by Dr. Leonardo Trasande. He's a professor of pediatrics and environmental medicine at NYU Langone Health. His research focuses on identifying the role of environmental exposures in childhood obesity and cardiovascular risks and on documenting the economic costs for policymakers of failing to prevent diseases of environmental origin in children proactively. He recently published a book, um, Sicker, Fatter, Poorer, The Urgent Threat of Hormone-Disrupting Chemicals to Our Health and Future and What We Can Do About It. Dr. Trisande, thanks so much for being with us today. It's um, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so to start off, should we be worried about plastics? Yes, we should be. Um, the reality is that the science is catching up documenting that uh, synthetic chemicals of a variety of sorts that are ubiquitous in our daily lives scramble hormonal signals and ultimately contribute to disease and disability. And I describe this much as a paradigm shift. Um, in the 1960s, around the time of the graduate, uh, thank you, Matt, for that introduction. Sure. Um, we assumed that chemicals that hurt our health 
uh, were once-offs, were mistake chemicals, if you will. So the story that I come back to every time is the pharmaceutical DES, diethylstilbestrol, which was given to pregnant women to prolong pregnancy and reduce symptoms and prevent miscarriage. And it was a very astute clinician at the Massachusetts General Hospital, Arthur Herbst, who identified a cluster of young girls who were documented to have um, adenocarcinoma of the vagina, um, serious condition, and we're still living that legacy now in the great-grandchildren of the DES mothers. Um, to the point where the, the boys were affected as well in more subtle ways uh, in the short term in male reproductive consequences uh, or birth defects and now much more substantially in the form of cardiovascular disease and other risks, obesity to just to name a few. And now in the grandchildren, we're seeing effects even though they were never exposed to DES in, in utero. Um, and that's probably because of epigenetic transformation. So modifications in the human genome without changing the, the genomic code. But back to the ori original paradigm that these were high dose effects and rare mistake chemicals. The reality is the science has caught up and uh, really documented with stark consistency two things, that low doses of chemical exposures matter. Uh, and that we have a thousand or so chemicals that literally do uh, scramble hormonal signals and ultimately contribute to disease and, and disability. The science is strongest for four categories of chemicals, and then we can drill in from there on plastics. Uh, the flame retardants, which are used in furniture, electronics, and carpeting, pesticides, which are used in agriculture, and the two that are most associated with plastics, phthalates, which are used in cosmetics, lotions, personal care products, and food packaging, and then bisphenols, which are used in aluminum can linings and thermal paper receipts. Um, and uh, just a word, and we can get into this more about this notion that low doses matter. Um, if you go all the way to lead, we used to think that that was much more of a dose makes the poison scenario, the Paracelsian uh, paradigm from the 1500s. Um, I'm going to leave aside some personal stories about Paracelsus for now. You, we can talk about those later. But there was this notion that um, the higher the exposure, you had this stock standard linear exposure response relationship. But that doesn't even follow the basic principles of endocrinology that we've known for so long. Leaving aside even basic things like the oxygen myoglobin disassociation curve or the oxygen hemoglobin uh, association curve, which are curve curvilinear and even non-monotonic. That is exposure functions, outcomes increasing in relationship to exposure and then decreasing. These U-shaped functions are biologically plausible and increasingly well-documented with mechanisms behind it, mostly from the laboratory. Um, in our daily lives, but how do we actually know that these chemicals are getting into our bodies? How, how do we know about that? Um, that uh, it has been more difficult than you would even imagine because the way the U.S. Uh, uh, regulations are set for food and packaging in particular, as well as cosmetics, are quite antiquated. The, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act has not been updated for cosmetics since 1938, arguably for food since the 1960s. There's debate about what aspects of that have changed. So there are loopholes in that regulation that essentially have for a long time allowed uh, chemicals to be added 
into packaging of, for food, for example, is generally recognized as safe. And that loophole has allowed a host of chemicals to go in not very well detected. And then uh, researchers have actually had to go sample the food or sample the packaging material, figure out what's in that packaging, and then work backwards and deduce what in those pack food packaging materials and other uh, food additives can ultimately uh, do to human health. Um, and so that has been a, a difficult limitation. The lack of transparency that has existed in this field has been a further uh, roadblock, leaving, leaving, leaving aside for a moment the reality that one doesn't conduct randomized control trials of these exposures in humans. We have to rely on interventional studies in rodents and tissues to evaluate effects in a controlled way, and then we have to rely on observational epidemiology. So it's it, the analogy I use when I talk to lay audiences about this, just like I began at the beginning with the big picture, is that we're often as researchers working with one arm tied behind our back. Uh, to There's a limit to the evidentiary threshold that we'll achieve in humans. And that it leads to a complicated dialogue, even within the epidemiology community, about how we compare findings, let's say, for diet and physical activity, where you can intervene and reduce much more readily than even you can reduce these exposures uh, in a controlled way in humans. Um, I mean, it's much more ethical to look at intervening in humans, but as we've learned from Kennedy Krieger, you actually have to give the advice in the inter in both groups, regardless about and the information about the uh, reality of the effects of these chemicals, and that leads to a Hawthorne effect, where the population that's the supposed control is actually getting reduced exposure. Uh, so these are the challenges that we face um, in interpreting these relationships in the first place. And that has slowed how we've responded as a community. It's almost as if we're waking up now. I mean, the first endocrine society scientific statement on this topic is from 2009. Um, now with accelerating speed, we're seeing uh, scientific societies really accept and accommodate this reality, not to mention public health agencies like the World Health Organization and the United Nations Environment Program. You were mentioning, um, Leo, some of the, the issues with, with respect to metabolic syndrome and endocrine disruption. I was wondering if, um, kind of also for a, for a general audience, if you can just briefly mention what sort of symptoms or conditions those might encompass. Sure. So we'll start by just saying that what little we know suggests there are 50 chemical obesogens out there. Uh, the poster child, if you will, is the chemical known as bisphenol A or BPA that is used as an anti-corrosive agent in aluminum can linings. It's also used in some polycarbonate plastics to make plastic proverbially hard. Um, it's limited in use now for reasons we can get into later and there are these bisphenol replacements that have come onto the scene. But BPA makes fat cells bigger, disrupts the uh, protective function of adiponectin for cardiovascular risk. And because it's a synthetic estrogen, by the way, it was considered as a pharmaceutical when DES came on the scene, but it was not estrogenic enough. And so we have a DES story, not a BPA story, by the way. Um, 
it can have sex-specific effects, especially during puberty, on body mass and growth. In addition, we know there are effects directly on the pancreatic islet cells uh, of BPA, uh, not to mention the possibility that oxidative stress, which itself is a diabetogen, can be induced by bisphenol A, which further complicates matters of interpretation. When you want to draw a universe of endocrine disruption, and the reality is oxidative stress is itself an endocrine disruptor, and yet it also has other effects uh, directly uh, leading to cardiovascular and metabolic risks. Uh, you can get into some very awkward debates that don't really make any sense. It doesn't, at some level, yes, they're endocrine disruptors. They may act via other mechanisms, but they're still affecting human health and disease, and they should still be regulated or right. limited and uh, in people's lives uh, on the basis of what they do to people, not on whether they hit pathway one or pathway two. So to, to touch back on something you were just mentioning about um, bisphenol A or BPA and some of the uh, what are termed regrettable substitutions. Um, so if a product says it's BPA free, what I think you're implying is that maybe that doesn't mean that it's safe. So for, is there a general rule of thumb that you have with respect to that? So um, the reality with environmental health and particular synthetic chemical exposures is we've, we've gone through chemical whack-a-mole many times. Uh, I could rattle off a number of examples. It's tempting to go off the BPA wagon for a minute, but BPA to a large extent, uh, because of the lack of a strong regulatory framework until very recently, even in the Environmental Protection Agency world, with the Toxic Substances Control Act, the presumption always is innocent until proven guilty. So if you find out BPA is bad, or at least people are smelling a concern and, get, and raising their hackles in the media and what have you, they replace BPA with BPS, BPS, BPF, BPP, BPAP, BPZ, just to name a few. It's I call them the artists formerly known as BPA, uh, hearkening to an analogy from the 1980s, not the 1960s. Uh, tip of the hat to Prince. So suffice it to say, what little we know about BPS is it's as estrogenic, as embryotoxic, and as persistent in the environment. To me, if I were sitting in the FDA or the Environmental Protection Agency and I had any regula regulatory capacity to limit exposures based on their similarity, you have a pretty compelling case to act on BPS just the way you would with BPA. But the way the rules are set, industry can substitute in. And so you have BPS instead of BPA. There are naturally derived substitutes such as oleoresin, but they've not been as widely used. Right. And, so, and so if I'm, uh, you know, I'm at home and I'm listening and I'm, I'm, I'm you know, sort of have a, a basic understanding of, of you know, a lot of the, the health information that's trying to, you know, I'm trying to digest in the news. What are the, what are the main things that I should be concerned about? I mean, is it really the, the main concerns from the chemicals that you're, you're saying are in plastics related to uh, hormone disruption and, and obesity, or are there there are other things that I would be focused on. 
so the science is especially strong for these syntheticals and their effect on the developing brains of kids. Mm. Um, flame retardants and pesticides are known to disrupt thyroid function. Now, as a pediatrician, I had it drilled into me that you check a baby's newborn blood spot, that heel stick, you get the blood, you run the sample, and through newborn screening, we've done tremendous work in preventing intellectual disability. And just to be clear, those are those are not in plastics, though. Flame That's retardants. right. The, the okay. uh, flame retardants all uh, are in carpeting electronics. Yes. Okay. And uh, I, I'm just picking on that example, and it's not plastic related, but there are studies suggesting that phthalates may have related concerns to thyroid function. Which so there's still some relevance to this topic. But the reason I bring this up is that uh, the science has changed even in the past 10 or 15 years, suggesting that prenatal thyroid hormone, even within the clinically normal range, that is, I draw mom's blood test for thyroid function, and her range may, her numbers may be in the normal range. Chemicals, even within that range, measured in people's urine or mom's urine and blood, can have palpable impacts on brain development by disrupting thyroid function in ways that can produce not just cognitive deficits that are subtle, but autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, the flame retardants and pesticides are among the most best known neurotoxicants that affect the brain through thyroid hormone, but phthalates and bisphenols are also in that second tier with some inconsistencies in the evidence, but concerns in that regard. So, mm -hmm. um, it, but more generally, it's we're talking about uh, with the phthalates uh, and bisphenols, if you want me to focus there, um, affects not just on the brain, but also on uh, cardiovascular risk. So uh, there are studies that have suggested uh, that bisphenol A exposure is associated with coronary artery narrowing, as well as newly incident coronary heart, uh, heart incidents. Um, and phthalates are associated with decreases in male uh, testosterone. And the concern in that regard is that low T, if you will, is either a marker for or predictor of, and we can debate what which one of those two it is for cardiovascular disease and stroke and mortality. Um, and there's a substantial amount of adult cardiovascular disease in men that can be traced uh, in part indirectly through decreases in testosterone, but back to these uh, testosterone disruptors, including phthalates. So um, I, I'm curious then uh, if if um, you know, one of the things that we think about in in epidemiology is not just you know are there effects, but how how big there are these effects. So I think that when people you know hear all the news about you know the the latest uh, you know are carbs bad for you, are carbs good for you, is fat good for you, bad for you, people often tend to think that these are going to have really large effects. So just because we know something has an effect, you know, doesn't mean that it's it's going to change our lives. It's not going to add you know, 10 years to my life. Are we talking the same kinds of things here where these chemicals can have impacts on, on obesity, can have impacts on, on heart disease, but we're not talking about you know, exposure to uh, you know, the, the, the plastic that I, I put my, my, uh, my food in is going to you know, take 20 years off my life. Right, so a similar analogy is to compare this to diet and physical activity, which are clearly the leading drivers of obesity and diabetes in the United States today. So nothing I'm saying here is going to limit the influence of those factors on metabolic risks. But diet and physical activity are hard to modify 
let alone sustain and change. And manufacturing practices can be much more straightforward to modify, not to mention purchasing practices as well. Um, and those exposures, even if they contribute to 3% of the entire bubble uh, that's around obesity and diabetes, have huge economic benefits associated with them through their prevention. So we did a study back in 2014, just looking at childhood obesity and adult cardiovascular risks due to bisphenol A. And we did a hypothetical, which was to say, if you took BPA out of aluminum cans and substituted it with something free of health effects, and in this case, we used oleo resin as the example, we assumed no effects, which is maybe an oversimplification, but that would cost $2.2 billion or 2.2 cents on the can times 100 billion cans. The reduction in childhood obesity and adult cardiovascular risks we modeled su suggest economic benefits on the order of $1.7 billion. And that's assuming that BPA only contributes about 2% of childhood obesity and a similar amount for adult cardiovascular risk, yet that's a big dollar amount. And, and so, that's just so, one of the exposures that, that you've been mentioning. That was one, one of the things that I was uh, going to see if you could talk a little bit more about how um, the, the mixtures of these exposures um, and, and what we know about those mixtures and then also the, the factors with respect to how long these chemicals may stay in the body or not. And does that offer some protection? Yes. So let me tackle, those are two really good angles. Let me take the first one first. So mixtures are uh, among the most complicated part of the work we do in environmental epidemiology and in really modeling the benefits of prevention. Um, you know, we have between 80 and 140,000, depending on who, whose numbers you use, synthetic chemicals that are at least identified as being used. The chemical industry will try to argue you down to 30,000 or fewer for a variety of reasons, but let's even acknowledge that there are four zeros after that three. That means that you have, from an epidemiologic perspective, you measure all 30,000 of these factors, it makes your head spin. This is something, with all due respect to the dietary epidemiologists out there, um, they don't have that problem, um, with all due respect. Uh, and as researchers, we've had trouble tackling this issue because most of the studies look at one chemical exposure of time and even the existing toolkit we have for modeling mixtures of exposures, assuming you can measure them, is grade school. I don't think it's high school. Um, I don't think it's college or, 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 or postdoc level even. So it tells you that we've got a long way to go in modeling these. Um, and so that complicates how we interpret the human health impact because in so far as you have chemicals that can up uh, uh, the effects of another synthetic chemical in the mix or decrease the effects or counteract the effects of a synthetic chemical in the mix that means that preventing one exposure may have a domino effect that's really uncertain uh, which is why when we modeled the disease burden and economic costs of endocrine disrupting chemicals, first in Europe and then in the U.S., we were very conservative in our approach, picking and choosing the exposure outcome relationships for which we could isolate a single chemical in distinct clarity, or we simply lumped the group of chemicals and modeled the category or categories of chemicals and their contribution.
given the state of our understanding or lack thereof of mixtures, do you, is your, should we think that in general our findings are conservative or are too strong if we're not getting the full picture? What we have done so far in the community is to be extremely careful about modeling the implications. Uh, I could spend a whole podcast having an interesting debate with others about uh, this notion that further research is needed is slapped onto every manuscript that we publish. Uh, I would make a very compelling argument that we have undersold the importance of individual findings from cohorts, let alone in composite the, the gravity and totality of the evidence. I think there's an anxiety often by some researchers to really promote the implications for attributable fraction or attributable risk in a way that uh, really would propel the field further and support the broader domain, getting the, the recognition. I think there's a fear of not being able to get funding for future research because you would then say, well, we know this is a problem, so let's address it as opposed to let's study it. Um, and th that's what it meant in the nicest problems. way possible. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry? I, I was going to say, but then there's the other 30,000 chemicals to study once we figure out that, that some are a problem. So, so it sounds like you're, you're saying that these chemicals could be a problem. So if, um, if a friend of yours was going to go microwave their lunch in plastic, uh, do, do you recommend for or against that? What, what should people do day to day? Um, I get that question quite a lot. I'll tell you, I have transformed a lot of people's kitchens uh, just from a 30 minute or less conversation, sometimes even a two minute conversation. So microwave safe plastic is misleading simply because at a macroscopic level, of course, it doesn't warp or misshape. That's what microwave safe means. But at a microscopic level, the lining is not designed to hermetically seal the chemicals in the material from leaking, leaking out. They're, they're polymers often, and polymers break down with temperature in a graded fashion. And those monomers ultimately leach into food and into our bodies. And time and again, that has been demonstrated that you get direct contamination of food and ultimately in the human body from these phthalate exposures. Um, in addition, avoiding machine washing plastics, especially with the harsh uh, chemicals, is important because it does the same thing uh, in terms of ultimately breaking down the protective seal. Um, another problem relates to single-use plastic, which I see reused by a lot of students, even the ones I teach. I feel like I have this slow-motion car crash vision when I see people doing this. There's microbiological contamination, by the way, in addition to the reality that those single-use plastics were not designed for reuse and were not designed in the same way uh, to protect people from the chemical contamination that can, that can occur. And are there other recommendations that you would have in terms of uh, things that people should, you know, can do to change their exposure risk? Sure. So my two minute, you could time me on this uh, speech, uh, would be besides what we've talked about, avoiding canned food consumption across the board, which gets you out of the entirety of bisphenols altogether, because what is BPA free doesn't mean bisphenol free. 
if there were bisphenol free guarantees, then we could potentially have a conversation. Also, those thermal paper receipts have bisphenol lining to them, the, the outer coating. It's meant to be used for the new uh, type of print. It's not the old school type print. It's that thermal printing that they use. So, wh sorry, what is that? I, that's, that's new to me. So let's say you go to a coffee shop, you get that receipt in hand. That yeah. receipt is coated with bisphenols. Really? And yes, and that absorbs directly into your skin. Dermal absorption is a major route of exposure, especially in adults, not in kids as much because kids don't use thermal paper receipts. And then there's this unconscious hand to mouth behavior that we all witness that yep. leads to absorption of that bisphenol enhanced. Now, um, I'm seeing some hand gestures on this podcast because I think I, I think I think we both know what we're, I'm going to go to next. So it's well known, by the way, that hand sanitizers enhance absorption in a particularly spectacular way. This has been done in controlled studies, where um, cashiers will will you know there often are these hand sanitizers right by the thermal paper receipts, and they you know often wash their hands with the hand sanitizer because they can't go to the bathroom. That would be disruptive to the workflow, and then they uh, they handle those thermal paper receipts, and their exposure as detected in their urine through biological monitoring is a 15-fold increase in levels of bisphenol. So talk wow. about an, uh, an environmental exposure gone occupational uh, in magnitude simply through a synergy of use of this hand sanitizer uh, with these thermal paper receipts. I suggest the electronic receipts. They actually are cheaper for the companies. They don't involve as much staff time, and they don't involve the waste that's involved. It's a win-win-win all around. I'm surprised this hasn't had as much uptake already, but I can be hopeful. There's a viral video, by the way, bpa-free.me, that's uh, pretty neat that delves into this topic in greater detail. Great. Um, Leo, one other question I had. So in terms of those recommendations about um, lifestyle changes, are there any particular um, groups that may be at greater risk or sensitive groups that, that should really um, attempt to enact those behavior changes? So I'm a pediatrician, so naturally this answer has some bias that you might want to couch this in, but there's biology behind this. Children are uniquely vulnerable because pound for pound they eat more food, breathe in more air, and drink more water. So they have higher exposure to these chemicals. Their organs are also rapidly undergoing development. The developing endocrine system is especially vulnerable. And brain development is especially well known that you could argue other organ systems are equally vulnerable in this regard, such that you have a developmental injury in an early point of life that has permanent and lifelong consequences for later function. Now, as I describe in the book, I appreciate that that's important and the elderly are also vulnerable. But this is something that cuts across 99% of us, not 1% of us. So I as an adult male, I'm concerned for my peers in particular, and I'm not just concerned about the decreases in sperm count that have been documented over the past six decades, especially over the past three decades with a 40% decrease in developed countries in sperm count. But I'm equally concerned about the reality that 40% of men have some degree of impotency. And I'm not suggesting there is superior evidence beyond some limited occupational studies, but what little we've seen from the occupational literature is that metals and bisphenols can affect male potency. Um, the laboratory studies suggest more, 
they suggest that if you uh, mess with male sex hormone, you can produce impotency, even in subtle ways. But most of that evidence is limited to the laboratory. If there's some urologist, epidemiologist listening on this podcast, uh, this might be a heck of a category of research ideas uh, to pursue. Absolutely. Um, one, one thing uh, that you haven't, I don't think, explicitly touched on, um, what about... Uh, baby bottles. Are, are those a risk? So I suggest the use of glass whenever possible. Mm -hmm. uh, there has been the most attention to this topic uh, among all the chemicals with respect to bisphenol A, as we've talked about. Um, the science back in 2008 was much weaker than it is right now. Uh, and yet, a consumer movement really drove companies to do the right thing and get BPA out. And by the way, that speaks to the sometimes process by which regulation occurs. This occurred in reverse. The families got upset. They went to the manufacturers. The manufacturers changed their methods and they ran to the Food and Drug Administration insisting on BPA being replaced. Now, I have concerns still, as I hinted with aluminum cans, about BPA-free baby bottles. Um, in general, they have deviated from using polycarbonate um, plastics, though I can't tell you that there's laboratory testing in a complete way that confirms the absence of BPS, BPF, BPP, BPZ, etc. What little we've seen, by the way, from teething toys and other categories of child and baby products by Karuntha Chalam Kanan and colleagues at Wadsworth Laboratories at the State Health Department in New York, suggests that those products, even though they're BPA-free, have BPS, BPF, and these replacements. So that's why, in general, in our household, you see very little plastic, if at all. And I have a 10-year-old and a 9-year-old, so I have to deal with the school systems that don't exactly enjoy this issue. But I'll talk about some workarounds. Uh, but mostly, we're, we're a glass household. Um, and just to talk about uh, school lunch, uh, there are these workarounds now, and they're not necessarily price problems. Um, there are these uh, aluminum or tin linings that are put into plastic containers now that either have a, a plastic or tin cover. Uh, these, by the way, don't have bisphenol A because they don't need the anti-corrosive properties that you need for long-term cans food storage. And then you can take out the tin wash it out and then put it back in after it's dried and that way you never have food contact with plastic surfaces to begin with now i should also say i'm not criminalizing every type of plastic out there there are particular types of plastic with greatest concern if you look at the recycling number on a plastic bottle the ones to avoid the numbers range from one to seven are three, six, and seven. Three is for phthalates, six is for styrene, a known carcinogen, and seven are for those bisphenols. Now, uh, there are some companies that would cry out and complain that I'm, I'm imputing number seven plant-based plastics, and I appreciate that. The problem is really the way these are categorized. So I can't convincingly tell you that there is bisphenol freedom from those plant-based plastics because of the number. Um, and in an ideal world, companies would take the extra step and test them 
regularly to document the absence of exposure. And that's really a theme in this book is that we can insist on that kind of transparency and ask some uncomfortable questions that can produce results that actually go multiple orders of magnitude above and beyond our individual perceived impact. Do you think that the that any change that we may see in terms of products is going to come probably from consumer demand as we've seen from some of the BPA replacements? I believe in the power of regulation. Don't get me wrong. My training the way I got into environmental health is actually through the lens of policy. I had a master's in public policy. I had my medical degree. I decided to spend a year on Capitol Hill after my pediatrics residency with then Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. And I was told to work on children's and environmental uh, health policy issues. And I learned about environmental health that way. Medical students get one to three hours of environmental health in their typical curriculum. They know nothing. As a resident, I learned a little bit about lead and a little bit about air pollution. So mind you, I went into the Clinton experience not knowing much, but learned so much and that transformed my career uh, direction. But what I'm saying here is that I believe in regulation. And at the same time, I see time and again, consumer movements really driving the change that we seek. So there are two examples that come to mind. They're not plastic purely, though they will inform safe and simple steps that we can all take to limit endocrine disrupting exposure. So this is gratis. Uh, the Teflon-like chemicals, the perfluoroalkyl substances, which are thyroid inhibitors and also have been known to induce weight gain in people who've successfully lost weight uh, in population-based studies. Um, are in buffet-style food packaging because they provide a nonstick characteristic. Not, it's not just in the pans that have the nonstick coating. Um, two major supermarket chains were outed as having perfluoroalkyl substances in their food packaging. And the moment they came out, the companies went to their manufacturers and said, no, 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 no. You guys get this out of the stuff you're selling us. And on Instagram and Facebook, you saw these buffet-style food packages parked aside and literally you saw the change that we seek. That didn't happen because we published peer reviewed scientific articles, mind you. This was a non-peer reviewed study of five, five. Those, that's that, the sample size, five. I never have published a paper with an N of five. Um, but back on point, that speaks to the profound impact that consumer activism can have on people doing the right thing and ultimately force multiplying what you and I as consumers have in the power of our wallets and pocketbooks. More recent, uh, even less recently actually, um, when California no longer required flame retardants to intentionally be added to furniture to prevent the spread of fires, which was done back in the tobacco era when there was this false notion that we could save lives by adding these flame retardant chemicals in the first place. Um, there was a change in the law companies had to at least document when in their manufacturing, whether flame retardants were added or not added. But then some companies kept it in. But then uh, through a consumer movement, awareness of the label came into vogue and companies were asked point blank whether they were selling flame retardant containing furniture. And all of a sudden, major providers, sellers of these furniture products went upstream to their providers and said, no, 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 no get us out of this problem. And all of a sudden they vouched that all their furniture was flame retardant free. So I see this as, as two arms. 
in, in an approach to improving public health. Um, I'm not suggesting it be hokey or based on limited science. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I, I do my own research uh, for that reason. I recognize that there are gaps. But when there's a probability of causation that's substantial and grounded in animal tissue as well as human literature when it's available, that suggests substantial cause for action. And we have to fundamentally ask ourselves as a society, how willing are we to gamble with our health? Um, I'm not going to get into a huge causality war with people, but I think that word is misused in a preponderance of the literature. To me, it's really the question is what are the stakes in these trade-offs that we're talking about with our lives? And we have to weigh uncertainties, acknowledge them, but we may have to act and we may change our mind. We may actually say, well, that chemical wasn't unsafe after all, bring it back here. That would be okay. But we seem to have a resistance for having some uncertainty in the science before we act. Um, one thing that, uh, that that brings up to me is the, the difference kind of with respect to the regulatory comfort with uncertainty in the US as opposed to in, say, the EU for the European Union, for example. Um, I don't know if you could uh, just speak briefly about what those differences and approaches kind of mean for consumers. So we'll start with the stat. Uh, 11 chemicals have been banned in personal care products by the FDA as of today. That number did not change since 2016, by the way, but that's not a political comment. That's just a statement of fact. Europe has banned 1,382, and that number increased by 54 since 2016. Um, so that speaks to a tendency to proactively intervene and limit exposure. So we likely have two different types of products being sold between the US and Europe. And in the book, we talk about an example of a hypothetical pair of families going on vacation, where I hypothetically measure their urine and their serum, and you see huge differences in the chemicals you can detect in their serum. Most of them relate to the flame retardants. Uh, because that's a legacy we know from the California story, and Europe never required flame retardants to be added to furniture and banned flame retardants, the brominated flame retardants, or in the early 2000s. And I'm curious, do we have, uh, have there been any studies that have documented whether banning any of these chemicals in Europe and allowing them to continue in the U.S. has, has led to any documented um, consequences? So we have historical comparisons of serum levels that show a huge discrepancy, wherein the bell curves, uh, the, the distribution curves don't, they barely overlap. But meaning, with, meaning, meaning there's more of these, clearly there's more of these chemicals in people's blood, but has that actually been translated into health effects? Um, the exa best example I can give you is uh, a European study which has slightly discordant findings on flame retardant exposure in utero and their effects on cognitive function in kids. The Spanish study that I'm referring to had much lower levels of exposure, still showed some directionality, showed some effects on certain um, subcomponents of, of IQ, um, but 
arguably was less well-powered, whereas all the U.S. studies where the exposure levels were much higher were in the range where they all saw exposure response relationships that are consistent. As you can imagine, there's no such thing as a paired study that you'd, you have to be very lucky or creative to design the kind of quasi-experimental design that would really answer the question we're talking about. I can use an example from the U.S. with respect to pesticides and the impact of regulation on pesticides. So a cohort at Columbia University in northern Manhattan in the South Bronx just so happened to start its children's environmental health cohort before the EPA banned two organophosphate pesticides in residential use. And before the ban, the levels of clopyrifos that were detected were much higher. There was an exposure response relationship with head circumference as well as other measures uh, anthropometrically in, at birth. And then after the ban, those exposure response relationships disappeared. That arguably is some of the most compelling quasi-experimental evidence that we can find for these kinds of effects. Um, not to mention that later on, those researchers found um, not just cognitive effects in relationship to chlorpyrifos exposure, but specific effects on magnetic resonance imaging of the brains of these kids. So that, again, speaks to the storyboard, if you will, that we have to assemble of the totality of evidence, some of it discordant sometimes, and we have to just wrestle with that and really decide what the degree of probability of causation actually is for these effects. And then we have to make a decision uh, about what the stakes are and what the probability is. But um, it, it's much like what we decide, uh, wh wh whether we set a traffic signal in a particular spot or, or decide about seatbelt regulation or something like that. We have to look at these trade-offs in a, in a coherent and, and conscious way. Excellent. Great. Thank you. Um, one, one last question uh, before I turn it back over to Matt. Do you recommend um, resources where the general public can go to learn more about these issues? Um, so on cosmetics and lotions in particular, which have these phthalates, uh, the uh, Environmental Working Group has an app called Skin Deep uh, that is remarkably helpful. Uh, there are uh, a variety of non-governmental organizations that have worked historically well in this space. I, I was once part of one called Healthy Child, Healthy World. Um, for, in the context of the book, I did put together some videos on my own personal website, leotrasande.com or sickerfatterpoor.com that have some safe and simple steps and guidance. Uh, I won't say they're on par with the viral video bpa-free.me, but uh, they're at least a decent effort to get the conversation started. The Endocrine Society has actually done uh, a really tremendous job as well at putting some of these uh, safe and simple steps guidance in uh, video and other accessible formats. Terrific. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. Uh, I want to thank for leading this conversation and to Leo for joining us on the episode. Before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June this year in Minneapolis. Uh, it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening and we will be back with another episode soon.